You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. We've been working our way through a series of seven messages given to seven churches uh, in Revelations chapter 2 and 3. And last week we started looking at that third letter to the third church, the church in Pergamum. And we find that in Revelation 2, beginning in verse 12, and it says, write this letter to the angel. Again, that word angelos in the Greek, it means messenger, pastor. And so uh, we believe that John is writing these letters. He's been instructed by Jesus to write these letters to the pastors of these seven churches. And he said, this is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. You refused to deny me, even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Repent of your sin or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven. And I will give to each one a white stone, and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. Now last week I kind of started off by talking about how this church was located in a very strategic way and place by the Lord. And he kind of refers to it, Jesus does, as this church is located kind of where Satan also has his throne. In other words, this church was purposely, just strategically, by design, by the Father, was placed right in the middle of hell's headquarters. It was living in the shadow of Satan itself. And as I said, if you were in Pergamum, you would see that there were evidences and influence of satanic uh, rituals and, and satanic influences everywhere in that city. And yet God chose, right in the midst of all that demonic activity, God chose to plant and raise up this little slice of heaven, this beautiful church called Pergamum. So right here where Satan dwells and and has authority and dominion and influences, God had put this church. And as we talked last week, they were a faithful church. They were a firm church. They were a following church. They were a very fruitful church. But they were also a church that was camped right on the doorsteps of hell. And Jesus kind of deals with this particular church in three ways. First way is he commends their loyalty. Jesus begins by commending them, complimenting them 
on their loyalty. And he makes this statement in verse 13. He said, you, meaning the church, you hold fast to my name. That is, they refuse to keep quiet about the name, the witness, the testimony concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. They would not deny the name. They would not deny his power. They would not deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you remember the church in Smyrna, again, the church in Smyrna, if they simply would have just kept quiet about Jesus, they would have been fine. The same is true here. If the church in Pergamum, if they would have just chosen to just say nothing, worship quietly, privately, do what you want to do, but just don't be public about it, they would have stayed out of trouble. They could have talked about their God all they wanted to. Nobody was concerned. Nobody would have pushed back. Nobody would have fought against that because everybody in Pergamum had at least one God that they were worshiping. It didn't matter whether there was Zeus or Asclepius or Apollo. Everybody was expected to be following some God. But it was when this church steadfastly confessed that Jesus Christ was God in human flesh, that he will always be God and God alone because they were very public and very steadfast in that message, they got into a lot of trouble. So they were loyal in holding fast to the name, the power of Jesus. They were also loyal in their creed. Jesus reminded them in verse 13. He says, you refuse to deny me. They did not give an inch on the faith that was once delivered to all the saints. And Jesus goes on to commend one man in particular here, a man named Antipas, who Jesus described as a faithful witness. One of the standout Christian saints there in that church of Pergamum was a man that Jesus identified by the name of Antipas. And that that name is a very, very interesting name. It literally means against everything. The word anti means against, the word pas meanings all or everything. So Antipas was a man who was willing to stand against everything everything that sought to oppose the message, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you stood against Jesus or in opposition to him, Antipas would not have anything to do with that. He was someone who was a faithful witness unto death, Jesus said. And Jesus calls him my faithful witness, or another word uh, in some translations is my, my faithful martyr, was someone who would continue to hold fast to what he believed. He would proclaim what he believed out loud, without shame, without regret, without apology. He would hold fast to the name, the witness, the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, even if it meant unto death. Again, this is one of the highest compliments 
paid to anyone in the word of God. If, if, if God calls you a faithful witness, man, that is a high, high compliment because it is the same phrase that Jesus uses about himself in Revelation 1.5. Here's a man who stood against the world that stood against Jesus who was not afraid to take a firm stand for Jesus, even if it meant losing his life. So we're looking at a church that was loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus commended them for that. Next, Jesus kind of follows uh, with some correction. Remember, those the Father loves, I think somebody mentioned it this morning, those the Father loves, uh, he corrects. I think, I think you mentioned that word correction this morning in, in your prayer. Do you remember that? Yeah, you did. <laughs> I, I'm, I always listen, you know, because I always find it's very interesting between the, the prayers and the worshipers, there's just such a confirmation of what God's doing in the message. And we don't, we don't collaborate uh, really at all. Um, they kind of know what I'm, I'm, I'm preaching on, but they don't know key words that I'm gonna really kind of focus on. So I, I really heard that this morning when you kind of picked up on that, you know, the, the correction that God wants to correct. Because again, it's, it's, a, it's one of the ways that he shows he loves us. God loves us by, by disciplining us, by correcting us, because he doesn't want to see us walking in air. He doesn't want to see us walking in, in ways that are going to lead to destruction or ways that are not going to lead to our blessing. So oftentimes he will discipline, he will correct, he will adjust us or readjust us to kind of get us back on uh, the path of blessing, to get on, on that right path. And so Jesus, he speaks to, and he begins to discipline and bring correction uh, to, their, to their doctrinal uh, laxity. And that was one of the uh, things that Jesus focused on. Even though this was a church that was very devoted uh, and loyal, uh, unfortunately, it had become a church of doctrinal laxity. And heresy was making its way into the church. And this was a church that had begun to kind of drift into compromise, and there were some unbiblical beliefs that were beginning to kind of just uh, uh, chip away at the foundation of this church. Now, again, I, I tell you this all the time throughout this series. What, what Jesus is bringing to the attention of these seven churches is something that all churches in every age, every culture, every time, uh, from now until when Jesus comes again, these are the same seven issues that every church is going to deal with. And so one of the things that he is uh, mentioning here is that there were some doctrinal heresies that were beginning to make their way into the church and was kind of eating away at the foundation of this church. And because Jesus loved these people, he loved this church, he begins to bring correction and discipline to them in this specific area. Now one of the problems in the church, um, as you're reading the scriptures, it, it wasn't that the majority of the church itself was holding to these unbiblical doctrines. The problem was they were tolerating the few who did hold to and were teaching and promoting these biblical doctrines. Now please make that distinction. It wasn't the majority of the church were, were buying into this. What they were doing was they were tolerating, they were allowing 
these heretical doctrines to be taught and promoted there in the church of Pergamum. They never confronted the people. They were not willing to challenge those who were teaching these false doctrines, these heretical teachings that were spreading in the church body. Again, this is not unusual. This is not something that's just unique to the church in Pergamum. Again, this is, this is a, a temptation. This is something every church in every age and every time will face from now until Jesus comes again. He's not pointing out something that was just unique to them that doesn't happen anywhere else. The enemy is always going to attempt to send messengers who are going to teach, preach, and promote beliefs that are unbiblical, that are gonna be heresies. We've had several people in the history of this church, Praise Community Church, come here and attempt to teach and mislead people with false doctrines. We had one man who came here several years ago. We were still over at the uh, building. We were meeting at the Youth for Christ building. He would come most Sundays. He would participate in the worship, and once the service was over, he would start going and telling people how what I was teaching on was not correct and was unbiblical. And then he would begin to share what he believed to be the truth. After a couple of Sundays of this, people started calling me and saying, hey, uh, you need to know so-and-so kind of came up to me and came against everything you were preaching that Sunday and then began to tell me that this was the truth. So after, you know, a couple of Sundays and a few phone calls of this, I, I immediately went and, and, and confronted this man, and he admitted, you know, that what he was doing and, and how he believed I was wrong, and he asked me to read these materials he had, and uh, I didn't really need to read a lot of the materials. I just needed to know one answer to a question, and so I just said to him, I just need to know what you believe on the person of Jesus Christ. Well, in essence, he told me, well, Jesus was a good man, but he wasn't God. And he didn't need to die on a cross. I said, well, I've heard more than enough. And no, I don't need to read any more of your materials. And you do not have my permission to be sharing any of that in this congregation. You want to teach that stuff, go get your own following. So I just said, if I hear of you going around in the church again um, and, and coming against what I'm teaching from the pulpit and, and trying to put forth uh, unbiblical, heretical doctrines, uh, you will be asked to leave the church and not come back. You're more than I'm more than willing to have you come here. You can participate. I hope by the grace of God that it'll open the eyes of your heart to the truth, that you'll repent and become a believer. That is my hope but I am not going to allow you to continue to teach and to promote uh, this kind of, of heresy. Uh, he came for like a couple more weeks, um, did what I asked him to do, um, and then um, he kind of uh, disappeared. Uh, and never, I, I've not really seen him back here uh, again. So again, I just was not willing to tolerate that kind of stuff in the church. Would it have gotten any traction? I don't know. But again, that's not the point. The point is, is that we need to be able to weed out and to confront unbiblical, heretical teachings in the church and not tolerate that um, at all. And I, I will tell you, this is one of the roles of the elders in the church. 
um, is to be aware of not only what I'm teaching and preaching, they need to make sure that what I'm promoting and what I'm teaching and preaching from this pulpit is biblical, but they need to be aware of what others are teaching in the church and to make sure it's in line with the word of God. And I think our elders do a great job of that. I remember at this church and uh, there was an individual there that was teaching a Sunday school class that many of the people at that church had gone to uh, and was teaching just absolutely uh, unbiblical stuff. And there were people that had gone and tried to confront him about it um, and he would not relent. And so I had gone to the senior pastor, I was associate pastor at that time, and just said, are you aware of what this individual's teaching? And he said, well, I'm aware of it, but he said, to my knowledge, he's never denied the deity of Jesus Christ. So I said, okay. So I had a meeting with this man and, and sat him down in my office, and, and I just said, I'm aware of what you're teaching, and, and I said, I, I just want to know, um, you know, uh, I, so I just kind of asked him, I, th- I think I'd ask him the question uh, about when he, uh, when he worships Jesus. Um, and he said, I don't worship Jesus. And I said, well, you do believe that Jesus was the Son of God? And he said, I do not believe that. It's like, okay, well, I know where he's at on the divinity of Jesus Christ. So I went back to the senior pastor and said, I just want you to know, I did meet with this man, and I specifically, we had a long conversation. And I'll tell you, some of the stuff that he told me in that congregation or in that conversation was some of the most twisted stuff I had ever heard in my life. And this man had been teaching this class for many years uh, there at the Methodist Church. So I went back to the senior pastor and I said, I want you to know, I did have a conversation with this individual, and this is what he said, and, and, and they still did nothing about that. This is, this is what Jesus was attempting to correct there. He's bringing to, their, to the attention of that pastor of that church. There are people in that church of Pergamum that are teaching unbiblical, heretical teachings, and you need to do something about it. That, again, is, is part of the role of the pastor. It is part of the role of the elders. And so he looks at, Jesus mentions two very, very important false teachings there. The first was what Jesus called the doctrine of Balaam. Interestingly, Jude 11 refers to the heir of Balaam. Second Peter 2.15 refers to the way of Balaam. And Revelation 2.14 refers to the doctrine of Balaam. And all three references in Scripture are negative uh, and indicate this doctrine, this teaching should be avoided at all costs. Jesus says in verse 14, you tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual immorality. So there was the problem in the church uh, of Pergamum of unspiritual carnality. Now, uh, 
there were those in the church of Pergamum that were teaching the doctrine of Balaam. Now, to understand this doctrine, you really got to go back and understand the story of Balaam, and that's found in Numbers 22, 23, and I just would encourage you uh, later today or sometime this week, you know, crack open that part of the Old Testament and, and kind of read that story, and you'll get kind of a fuller flavor of what was really happening there uh, with Balaam. Now, Balaam was a Gentile prophet, he knew the God of Israel. He walked. He had relationship with the God of Israel. Balak um, was the king of Moab. And he sent for and wanted Balaam, this Gentile prophet of God, he wanted him to come and to pronounce a curse over uh, the nation of Israel. He wanted Balaam to use his prophetic influence uh, to curse the nation of Israel. So he tried to bribe Balaam, God's prophet, to curse God's people, the nation of Israel. What's interesting is Balaam tried to do that not once, not twice, but three times. And each time, God would not allow him to do it. And God told Balaam, the only thing you can do is to bless Israel and not curse Israel. The same is true today. If we want to be a blessed nation, one of the ways we do that is by being a blessing to Israel. And I will tell you, that is one of the things Donald Trump figured out. Now, it doesn't matter to me where you're at on the man, Okay? I'm just telling you, he's doing some good things. And part of this peace accord, I believe, and I believe it is gonna begin to pull in more and more and more nations because he has chosen to bless and to be a blessing to Israel. And God, in turn, is blessing him and using him in spite of all of his weaknesses, his faults, his failures, which are many. I'll give you that. But you'd have them too if you were sitting in the Oval Office. He is a blessing to this country because he is a blessing to Israel. And God is using that to bless. And the same is true. If, if you curse Israel, if you do things, say things that bring a curse upon Israel, you're gonna bring a curse upon yourself and upon the people you represent. That's just biblical. So he says, the only thing you can do is bless Israel. You can't curse them. There are some things so obviously clear that you just don't need to pray about. That's one of them. You don't ever have to go to God and say, God, do you want me to curse Israel today? No, never. God will never ever use anyone at any time to curse Israel. God will deal with Israel. God will discipline Israel. God will bring correction to Israel. Just as God is disciplining the United States, just as God is bringing correction to the United States, God does it. Well, Balaam would not leave well enough alone. He really wanted the money that Balak was offering him. So he comes up with what he thinks is just this ingenious plan. 
okay, God, if you won't let me curse them, I will begin to promote ways within the nation of Israel that will provoke and bring the cursings of God upon them. So Balaam's plan was to seduce the Israelites into committing fornication and adultery with the Moabite women. And Balaam begins to prophesy and tells the nation of Israel that it was all right for them to cohabitate, to co-mingle with these Moabite women. So Balaam's plan succeeds in getting the Israelites both to worship the foreign gods of Moab and to cohabitate with the Moabite women. And when Balaam did that, God, true to his word, brought correction to the nation of Israel, and it resulted in 24,000 Israelites losing their lives. That kind of gives us some insight as to what the doctrine of Balaam was. It's interesting if you, again, go back and read that. One of the things that that Balaam kind of goes back to Balak after he inquires of God, and he says, you know, God, this is is what they want me to do. And God says, no, I don't don't want you to go with them. I don't want you to do that. His response to Balak is is, is that God won't let me. You kind of get the impression that I really wanted to do this. I really could have used the money. As a matter of fact, I kind of had the money already spent. I wanted to do this, but God would not let me. This is a man who is constrained by the word of God rather than the word of God being his delight. There's a big difference We can choose to be constrained by the word of God. In other words, I really want to do this, but you won't let me. Or we can find ourselves being delighted in the word. I get to do this because this honors you. This glorifies you. This is what I want to do. This is my heart's cry. This is my destiny. But that was not the way Balaam looked at this. I can't do what I really want to do because God won't let me. The doctrine of Balaam is the attitude that you can be fully immersed and cooperate with the world and still serve God. The doctrine of Balaam, it encourages compromise wanting Christians to forget that we are called to be separate, that we are called to be holy, that we are called to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. The doctrine of Balaam, it's one of those things when it's, when it's uh, implemented, it will eventually make believers undistinguishable from unbelievers. The doctrine of Balaam is a belief that a little sin won't hurt, especially if there's some financial gain or personal gain to be had. So a person following the doctrine of Balaam is willing to compromise their beliefs for the sake of economics. In practical terms, the teaching or doctrine of Balaam is the view that Christians can, or really even should, compromise their convictions for the sake of popularity, money, sexual gratification, or personal gain. 
It's the attitude that begins to treat sin as no big deal. The doctrine of Balaam is simply the mixture of the church with the mixture of the world until you can't tell the two apart. So the church at Pergamum, they were kind of being taught was, you know, it's okay to worship pagan gods. We're in a time of grace. Ever hear that one? It's all right to engage in sexual immorality because God will forgive you. It's all right to go to the temple and and worship pagan gods, whether it's Zeus, and then have relations with the temple prostitutes. That's essentially what the doctrine of Balaam was. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans was a little different in that it involved the use or the, uh, uh, the abuse of unbiblical authority. The best clue comes from the meaning of the word itself. The word Nicolation literally means to conquer or dominate the people. The word Nike, we're all familiar with that. That means victory or domination. Laos is the word for people. It's where we get the word laity from that word, laos. So it literally means to have victory or to have dominion over the people. And so it seems that there were some people there in the church who were trying to set up some form of of priestly or pastoral domination in the church. They were teaching that the clergy is separate, is better than the laity, and must be elevated above the people. They were trying to set up an ecclesiastical hierarchy where the priest, the pastor, would be up here. The people would kind of be down there. There would be no coming to you. There would be no you coming to me. So you would have to confess your sins to the priest. You don't go to God directly. Who do you think you are? You couldn't interpret the Bible yourself. I'm educated. You're not. I have a degree, you have nothing. So I will tell you, I will interpret the word of God for you. That, that's, that's what was beginning to happen there in the church of Pergamum. The priest, the pastor, would have final authority and complete authority over you, not the word of God or God himself. Jesus had something to say to people like this. Matthew 20, beginning in verse 25, but Jesus called them together, his disciples. And he said, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. He says, but among you, and he's speaking to us, me, you, us. He says, it's not gonna be like that with you. It will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be what? Servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must become a what? Slave. For even the Son of Man, Jesus said, came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What is so cool about this to me is that Jesus doesn't just talk about this. 
He sets the example by coming to serve others, not to be served, to wash the feet of others, not to just have his feet washed, and to give his life as a ransom. As the Son of God, he had every right to be served. He had every right to have full, complete authority, and yet he chooses to lead in a totally different way, the way of the kingdom of God. And he calls you and I to do the same. If you want to become a leader, become a servant. If you want to become first, he says just become a slave. In other words, if you want to be top dog, become a slave. This is the exact opposite of how the world works. The world would look at Jesus, what he is saying, what he is doing, and just say, you are crazy. And again, this is just one of many examples where the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. Amen? Amen. At the foot of the cross, the ground is completely level. Every one of us comes in need of God's grace. Me first and foremost. Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. How refreshing is that? Here was a man who knew God very, very intimately, wrote almost half of the New Testament, and yet he saw himself as someone who stood in great need of God's grace and mercy all the time. I am not any better than you, and you're not any better than me or anybody else here. And thank God you do not have to go through me to get to God. I'm, I'm happy to be, you know, a, an assistant. I'm, I'm happy to help you get to God, but you don't need me in, in, in that sense. You do not need me to read or interpret the word of God for you. I'm happy to do that on Sunday mornings. I try to do that uh, to the best of my abilities, but it doesn't need to just stop here. You can, you can take the word of God and the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. He will teach you. He is the great, the perfect, the everlasting, awesome teacher. He will teach you as he teaches me, as I teach you, as you teach one another. It's, it's a beautiful way that the Holy Spirit works in this. So you don't need me in the sense to, to be the, the, the only or the sole uh, final say uh, on the word of God. Again, we have the spirit of truth dwelling in us. If you are a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, you have the spirit of truth living inside you. Paul says you have the mind of Christ. But in terms of our relationship to the Lord, our function in the church, we are all priests. I'm looking at a room full of priests. under the authority of the ultimate high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10 states, but you, and he's speaking to you, you and me, you are a chosen race, a chosen people, a royal 
priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Man, read that, receive that as a son, as a daughter of the Most High God. This is who you are. This is your identity in him. This is how he sees you and me. He sees us as his children. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, this scripture is talking about you. Amen? So to summarize, we'll pick up here next time. The teaching of Balaam, it refers to the seducing the people into idolatry, into sexual sins, into into just sinning under the guise of God's grace. God will forgive. Um, And the teaching of the Nicolaitans refers to trying to dominate um, the people. Jesus corrects them, and he will correct us if we engage in that stuff as well. And we need to welcome um, that correction. And we'll kind of get into that next time uh, because he, he gives them that, that one word, um, that beautiful word, repent. It's not a command of God. It is a gift of God to us. When we just receive that gift, when we just repent, when we just come to see the light of the truth and, and we just begin to walk in cooperation uh, with that word, that, that is, that's that repentance. Uh, and again, it is a gift that God has given to, to us. So let's just go ahead and stand uh, together this morning. Invite the worship team to come back up onto the platform. Father God, we just thank you so much for your word this morning. Father, we thank you that as you look at every one of us, as you look at your church, Father, that we thank you, God, that there are are just places where we will receive your your commendation, God, where where we will receive, uh, again, uh, uh, just your, your word of just affirmation, that God, when you, you look at us, and God, you see our hearts, God, that you can't help but just begin to, to just affirm uh, who we are in you. And Father, you did that uh, in that church there in Pergamum. You do that in, in every church. You do that in individual believers. You affirm us as sons and daughters. And Father, we wanna receive that this morning. Father, we want to receive our place, our position as sons and daughters. We want to walk in that in in deeper and fuller ways. That, God, we we would continue to live out of our identity of who we are in you. And so, Father, I just pray, Lord, that there would just come greater and deeper affirmations in our spirit as to who we are in you, how you're calling us to walk more and more in your grace, in your mercy, in your love, your kindness, in your goodness, Father. We thank you for that. Father, this morning, we also receive correction. 
We are open this morning to discipline on an individual and a corporate level. So, Lord, this morning, if there would be anything in us, Lord, that would be hindering your presence, your power, your love from flowing in us, Lord, whether that, that opposition is coming in thought, word, or deed, that, God, you would, you would just send your Holy Spirit, that, God, you would just begin to, to bring restoration, healing, correction in those areas this morning. And that, God, we would see this as, as a form of your love. That it is your desire to make us more and more into your image. And that is a positive, not a negative. That is a gift that you have for your sons and your daughters. So, Father, we want to receive that in God in any area, individually, corporately, God, where we need to repent. That, God, we would receive that, that we would walk in that that we would receive the revelation of your word in that particular area, that it would bring correction, that it would, that it would realign us away from the world and into your kingdom. So God, if there would be any ways of the world that are in us, God, help us to lay those down, to forsake those, to run from those, and to run to you, to pick up the language of the kingdom, to pick up again the behavior of the kingdom, God, that we could begin to be a reflection of who you're calling us to be. Father, we pray, Lord, that that would be the way that your spirit would not only move in this church, but in churches throughout the city, throughout the state, throughout our country. Father, we need revival. We need Holy Ghost revival. We need Holy Ghost encounters. And Father, we welcome you in this place. Individually, we welcome you. Corporately, we welcome you. We want you here. We want you high and lifted up. We want you reigning in this place, in all of your glory, in all of your excellencies. We want to be sons and daughters. We want to be a reflection. We want to be image bearers. We want to be that chosen people, that royal priesthood. Start with me. Start with us. Start with this church. That we would be possessors of you. That prayer we prayed at the beginning, Father, I pray again, Lord, that, that you would just take that, God, and that you would just begin to immerse us in that. This is what you want. This is your calling for each of us to take our place in that position, to take our place in that relationship, to take our place in that intimacy with you. Yes. Father, we pray that your love would overcome any and all hindrances that would keep us from that, any and all obstacles that would keep us from that. Set us free. 
set us free to fully, to completely, to totally love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. thank you for your power, your presence in this place. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. And we give you complete rule and reign in us, in this church, and in this city. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org.